Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. I hope that many of you have already read that first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We're in the latter part of it. Matthew went through verse 15 last weekend, and we start there and uh, try to... It's difficult to get through as much as we have to this morning, but we'll do the best we can. The Gospel of Mark, as it says on your outline, is sometimes called and has been for many years by scholars a passion with a prefix, meaning that he quickly gets through various events in the life of Jesus and he makes no attempt to put them in chronological order in order to quickly get to the cross or the last week in the life of Christ. The Apostle Paul summed it up this way when he was writing in, to the Corinthian church. He said that he was determined to know nothing else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that was the heart of his message. So the text uh, in the next few weeks that we will be having as we read together, we'll, we'll just be looking at carefully chosen events in the life of Jesus that Peter passed along to young Mark, and he wrote them down, but his real emphasis was to get to the cross. The, we're looking here at... Uh, if you're following your outline, you'll notice that the first thing we're looking at is what I've called the call. Because, and, and this is a serious situation, the ramifications are serious uh, of, of what took place here. It reads thusly, starting at verse 16, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you to become fishers of men. It doesn't say become in your text, but you need to write it in because that's exactly what the Greek text says. I will make you to become fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets, or repairing their nets, either will work. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Jesus was calling his disciples, who would ultimately become apostles. There would be 12 of them. There were literally hundreds of disciples, and from those hundreds, there would, he would select 12 to be apostles. Let me talk to you about a calling, because I think it's misunderstood, and the church has done it, not the Bible. Because we have a lot of people today who talk about, I've been called to this, and I've been called to that. But when you say, give me book, chapter, and verse, they have a problem. They can't do it. It isn't there because, you see, almost all of the callings in the Bible are just calling to come to Christ. Come to Christ and follow him. 
people have it, preachers in particular, take advantage of that and wrap themselves in, in religious verbiage to make themselves look good, and it's all unnecessary. I was called to the Lord. Well, if you're a Christian, you are. But what about to the preaching ministry or to a missionary or whatever? Let me be very honest with you how this has happened through the years. Same way it happened to me. I was recruited by the church. By my home church. I had a scholarship to the University of Kentucky in engineering that would have paid me through school because we were poor people and that was a big issue. The preacher named Ralph Bowers came out to the house and sat down with mother and daddy, unknown to me. And then later he approached me and said, we think that you have the personality and the academic credentials and blah, 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 blah to become a preacher. I didn't want to become a preacher. Because in our church, every five years we fired the sucker. <laughs> and we honestly thought that when he was gone, our problems were gone. But five years later, it had to be done again. And it took a long time for us to figure out the problem was us and not the preacher. Because there were never any moral charges. They just, you know, thought we could do better. And I would go to a church and at church camp, and on Friday night, they had what was called the Galilean service. And in the Galilean service, the preacher at the church camp would actually strongly recruit people to go to a Bible college. So I ended up at Kentucky Christian College. I completed my work there, and then I went for graduate work at Vanderbilt University, all because of another scholarship. The idea that uh, you hear some kind of a voice from heaven saying, I want you to be a preacher. People tell those stories, but I never heard that voice. Because you see, in the New Testament, the Bible teaches that the church has the responsibility of seeking out from among them those who have gifts for teaching the Word of God and preaching the Word of God. Recruiting them, laying on hands on, that happened to me by the eldership of our church, of Germantown Christian Church. After I had completed Bible college, that was then, and I had to go through an interesting ordination situation where you were, had to fast for a period of time and then the elders of the church laid hands on you and then wrote a letter of recommendation to the churches that you could take with you. That's the way I entered the ministry. And to be honest with you, that's the way most people used to. For many years, I was the chapel, I was chapel speaker at, at uh, church camps all over the United States. 
just I was young and and they thought well he's young and and maybe he'll appeal to these young guys and so on a Friday night we'd have the Galilean service and I could write down probably here in a matter of minutes a score or more of guys who were still preaching that came and made their commitment to be entered the ministry as a result of the recruitment that we made at the Galilean service at the church camp. That's just the way it was done. The Galilean service has kind of gone away, and not many people go to church camps as they used to. And the result is this. We're having a really difficult time finding ministers for churches. They were that you wouldn't have an 81-year-old standing up here now. They're just hard to find. And if you find a young man, and we've done that here. We've recruited a young man. I don't know whether CJ is here this morning or not. He was there last night. Are you there somewhere? He's out there? What's he doing out there? I ought to be in here. <laughs> anyway, and now and, and, and so the difficult now is finding a school that believes the Bible that you can trust to train them. And so we've decided, you know, we'll do the best we can to keep him here and, and, and train him ourselves as best we can. He's already enrolled in a seminary online, and you'll have to go there. It's a, it's a Baptist school out in Kansas, I think. It's really difficult. Because when they get out of college, instead of in most colleges and universities and even seminaries now, teach them what's wrong with the Bible instead of what's in it. And they come out with questions rather than confidence. We need people who are on fire for Jesus Christ, who love to preach and teach the Word of God, and who want to see people come to Christ and rejoice when they do, and jump up and down when you see people go through the baptistry, because that's the primary way that we keep up with converts that are coming to Christ. So the, the calling is always, and here to these four men, that ultimately all of whom became apostles, were not called to an apostleship, they were called to Jesus. He said, you come and follow me. That's the primary call of everybody initially. You come to follow Jesus. Don't join the church, doesn't mean dickly squat. It's do you love and follow Jesus. And that was his call here. It's really that simple. And I will make you to become fishers of men. Now, if you assume, as a lot of people have in conversations I've had in the last week or two, that this was the first time they ever saw Jesus, then you're making a serious mistake. They, by the time that he called them, they were quite familiar with him because he had moved his home from Nazareth, where he grew up and where he worked, over to Capernaum, Caper Nahum, Caper Nahum is, the, we call Capernaum. Caper means village. Nahum, it means, is the name of an individual. It was the village of Nahum. And he came, he, had, he set up his headquarters there. And, this, and the chances are, just like the, the young men here that we recruit to, to, for the ministry, 
The chances are he'd sat down on the boat with them and whittled and spit and talked and, uh, with them for a while. And, and finally, the day came when he walked by and said, the day that we've been talking about is here. Come on and follow me. And they did. And that's how this reads here, but it's a mistake to believe. So what was he doing calling these guys? Jesus was in the process of establishing the church. And that began with the inner circle. Why did he have 12 followers? Probably, can't prove this from Scripture, probably because there were 12 tribes of Israel and the church was to replace Israel, and so he had 12 apostles. Probably. And the book of Revelation kind of fiddles with that and kind of implies that may, that may have been the case. And he wasn't calling them to hang out at a coffee house somewhere. He was calling them to get in the business of dealing with people. If they knew what was in store for them, they'd have probably said, not you, buddy. You'd, you go on and find somebody else. If I'd known what was, I was going to face in 50 years as a minister, I'd be an engineer today. I don't know how he conned the Apostle Paul when Judas went bad and he was replaced by the Apostle Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles and he was told, you go on into the city of Damascus and there's a guy going to come in there and tell you how to be baptized and then what you're going to suffer for Jesus. If I'd have been told what I was going to suffer for Jesus, I don't know, I, at very best I'd be a deacon. He did tell them later on, this is in, in Luke, records it in, in the ninth chapter, Luke, verse 22 and 23. He said, guys, I tell you what you're going to have to do if you're going to be my followers. And he probably had already discussed it with them some. If you're going to be my followers, you're going to have to be willing to deny yourself, which means you give up on your aspirations and your total commitment has to be to me and what my agenda is. Because he had received his agenda in heaven before he came to earth. And what we're going to look at in just a minute here is we're going to see that the devils tried to pervert and destroy that agenda because he already knew what it was. Jesus called them to service. Now let me tell you what you need to know if you don't. There's two or three things I'm getting ready to say this morning you probably haven't heard before and some you have heard and you ignored. But the New Testament teaches that if you're a Christian, you have entered the ministry. But within the ministry, there are various, we are gifted in various ways. There are some who are gifted as apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers. And there are other gifts of the Spirit in the Bible. If a church functions the way it ought to be, you need to figure out what your gift is and then you need to be given permission and encouraged to exercise it. We need to be a functioning body and not just a crowd comes together and listens to some performance on the platform and go back to doing what we always did. That's what kills, that's what's killed the influence of the church on a worldwide basis. He's called us to service, and he, Jesus, said, and I'll set the example. 
When questioned, he said, in the 20th chapter of Matthew, he said, I came not to be served, but to serve. One of the fun things that's happened here through the years, when Ralph came on board, he was used to the way things were done in the black churches. And in the black churches, the ministers are elevated to a rather high position of esteem. And he continued that attitude here toward me. I get tired of reading. I go out and pick up a rake and pick up leaves or do something just, you know, because my eyes get all gummy and whatever. He'd come running out. Hey, pastor, let me do that. I said, you know, you go back to your hole and leave me alone. I, need, I can work. There's nothing wrong with sweating a little bit just because you call yourself a preacher. Now, I appreciated the attitude. But Jesus, you see, was one of the guys he probably did sit on the edge of a boat and talk to these guys. And he did go where the people were. He hung out. And that's good. These guys were to come together to form a fellowship. And they were to become the foundation for the church that he's going to introduce in the 16th chapter of Matthew when he's talking to Peter, to form a fellowship, a relationship where we come together on a regular basis to do three or four things. Acts 2.42 spells that out. It said they continued. This is I, I did my memorization in King James, because that's the only Bible we had uh, in, uh, when I got off of uh, the ark. And... Uh, and it's, it's, it simply says this, and they continued steadfastly in Acts 2.42 in four things. In the studying of what the apostles wrote. That's your New Testament. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship. Now that's a sharing of our lives because people come in here and come together and they, they carry a burden and they need somebody, they need somebody that they can puke in their pocket and not be held against them. That's a little gross, but you get to be, they have to, they've got to get rid of what's bugging them and be able to say it without it being held over their head and know that the reaction is going to be that we're going to pray for you and check on you to see if we can help. That's called koinonia in the Greek, which means the sharing of our life. It also means the sharing of our resources. Because some people come and they're hungry and need to be fed. A few times we've even helped pay people's rent and helped. One time a guy was like three months behind in making his house payments. He lost his job and we put a bucket up here, a Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket up here and several thousand dollars went into it and we paid his three months back and three months ahead and it worked out. He paid most of it back. Didn't have to because it was a gift. But it's a, and, and, and so within the body of Christ, we are to develop koinonia. That's when we share our lives with one another, get to know each other. We don't eat together enough because that's where you really share things. I'll tell you a lot of things I won't tell you from here if you buy me something to eat. <laughs> and almost everybody else is the same way. 
and it just creates it. And so, now I'm getting ready to tell you something that you really don't want to hear. Just within the last three weeks, an article was in the Wall Street Journal, and some people were on television talking about this. I've been involved for a good while in a research group called Barna. It's Barna Research Group, B-A-R-N-E-A. They're the only research Christian research group that I know of that really is on a broad basis. And some of the research that's being done within just the last year, it's only a year old, it's going to be three years old when it's completed, has to do with, it was triggered by the opioid thing that is so bad. And 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 so the question is, in business, we have long done something that you don't talk about in public because it's just kind of business talk. We do, when there's a problem, we do what's called a root cause analysis. And a root cause analysis does more than just look at the superficial. It tries to get to the motive behind behavior and not just the behavior itself. So what's the root cause of what people are doing? What is the root cause of why people get into drugs? Why is it? Truth of the matter is we didn't know. All kinds of all kinds of speculation, but was there any research that looked at just the data, left the emotions out of it, looked at the data of interviews first face on nothing on the internet, face to face interviews? Up to, we're looking at anywhere from a quarter of a million to 300,000 individuals before it'll be complete. And, the in, and, and, and a year of it is about complete. And in that year, if we were to give you just the results of the data as we have it now, why do people get involved in drugs? Any kind. And the answer right now there's, there's more than one, but the one that's way above all the rest is a lack of healthy relationships. A lack of healthy relationships. Now is where the cheese gets binding. Why don't we have healthy relationships? And the number one reason Right now, I'm talking about right now. The, 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 this, this is going to go on another several hundred thousand people and at least for two more years before it will, a final paper will be presented. And the answer to the number one problem of why we do not have healthy relationships is this. Have you washed the dishes? Huh? Have you made the bed? Huh? The internet, games, the telephone. At our house, whenever we have a meal, no telephones are permitted. We had, I think, 15 or so at the Christmas dinner, and we sat down, and before we had our prayer, the first thing that we said is, all telephones have to be turned off and put away. 
And the funny thing about it is, after everybody had finished eating, I looked back at the end of the table, and two of my own family were holding up playing games with one of these stupid things here. I should have and didn't, because I'm accused of being an overbearing jackass anyway. I should have just gone back and taken them and put them in my pockets and say, you can have them when you leave. If it happens again, since I've told you and I've got some support, I'll do it. But what I'm telling you is this, if the preliminary research is right, we had better learn what fellowship is in the body of Christ because we've had people in our church who have had the same problem and have that problem right now. And I'm going to encourage you to do something you probably don't do. Way back when, we did it, on the farm at least. We didn't have any of these to start with, so that wasn't a problem. The only telephone we had when we finally got a telephone was some old box on the wall that you gave this to. But I'm going to encourage every one of you to do something, and I mean make a commitment to do it, to God and to each other. And that's every day, come hell or high water, every day, have a family meal where no television, no telephone, no nothing except the family that sits together. I want you, and in time we're going to give you a, a, a little... Uh, devotional that you can use while you're there at the table, have your prayer and then eat. And then have an atm a non-threatening atmosphere where you can talk about anything. If you want to see how that's done, the only television program that I know that does something like that is at some, t some time or another on the picture of Blue Bloods. Now, they're a bunch of Catholics, Irish Catholics, but the, the principle of what they're doing is well worth your while in watching. We're going to get a lot of resistance from the young folks if they're already addicted to those things. But the addiction needs to be... These are excellent tools if they're used as tools. They have great value if they're used properly. So I'm not saying they're sinful. I'm saying people that are using them are sinful and we need to deal with that. That's the problem. Now... They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, that koinonia, breaking of bread, because they ate together, and at the end of their meal, they had the Lord's Supper. They even called the meal a love meal, an agape meal, because a church that doesn't have love isn't really a church. It's just a gathering of people. And then prayer. Now, let's talk about, let's talk about Capernaum for a little bit. We've got to move right along. I only have 15 minutes left here. Let's look at the... And we have a map of, of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, I think we do. There we go. If you look up there where the uh, red dot is, just to its left is the city of... Uh, the town, the fishing town of Capernaum. That's what Jesus moved his headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum. And he was well known there. 
and he preached all. And that the Sea of Galilee there is kind of shaped like a harp. It's about 13 miles long and about eight and a half miles wide at the widest point. It is the headwater of the Jordan River, which flows about 90 miles and then dumps into the sea, the Dead Sea. I've, I've been on it many times in a boat and fiddled around out there on it. You, you see, a lot of, and, and the fishing from the Sea of Galilee was known all over the Mediterranean world. In fact, the cities around there, some of them, I put them in your, in your notes, some of the cities even have fishing names. Bethsaida, which is just to the right of the dot up there, uh, it, it, it literally means the house of fishermen. And then you have Magdala, which is down in the middle, just across where it says Sea of Galilee. The lit, it literally means fish town. And then there's another city... <coughs> excuse me, called, um, that means salted fish, because their salted fish was, was sought after in Rome and as far east around the Mediterranean as Alexandria in northern Egypt. It was a, and the, the, the um, so it was a fishing place and it was extremely well known Josephus, who was the governor of Galilee, and it was called the Sea of Galilee because it was in the province of Galilee. It's also been called the Kenareth, Sea of Kenareth. It's been called the Sea of Tiberias because if you look down on the lower left-hand side, you would see that the largest city located on the, the lake there is called Tiberias. It's down here in the lower left-hand side, and that's the largest city that was there. But Jesus operated there in a, in a town and, uh, called Capernaum. And in that town was a synagogue. Now, in order for any town to have a synagogue, there had to be at least 12 males who are past the age of the bar mitzvah or usually 12, 13 years old. Had to have at least 12 uh, men or ten men, I'm sorry, ten men, later it was twelve in some places, but it was ten men in the New Testament era who had passed the age of the bar mitzvah. And it's here that we find the next passage of Scripture that we're going to read, starting at verse 21. Then went, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, that means Saturday, from, Friday, from uh, six o'clock on Friday night to six o'clock on Saturday night, is the Sabbath, means the seventh day. Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority and not as the teachers of the law. And just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said harshly, and come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all amazed. That, and they asked each other, what, what is this? A new teaching with some new authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of the province of Galilee. 
Where did Jesus get his authority and what were these evil spirits? I'm going to have to truck right along now, so hang with me. I doubt if you have ever seen anyone possessed of an evil spirit, and I doubt if you would recognize them if you did. I've seen in 50-some in years, actually 60, since I was ordained, I have seen two instances where I really thought they were, and they were in Saud County, were legitimately possessed of the old, one was a woman. And when she went off, her face was contorted in, in something that was, I could not, I could, I have no capability of describing the contortion of her face and her body as she screamed and yelled and cursed and carried on. The other was a man. When he went off, it was exactly the same thing. His face, it looked like he would just blow the top off of his head. His face was so red. His face was so contorted. His, his terminology was so foul. Now, you may think that being the real hoss that I am, I just stood up and said, come out of you. I didn't. I sat there and didn't say a word. I had never seen anything like it in my life. And I didn't know what to do. Jesus had to deal with this, and, and for some reason or other, he had the authority. So where did he get that authority? Where did he get the authority to say to somebody who was possessed, like I've described, and maybe even worse, come out of them, and they did, and they became whole and healthy. It's really, I can give you some biblical answers, but that's about as far as I can go because I don't understand this nearly as well as some of the missionaries who've been in Africa and Asia and other places where demon possession is not that unusual. If you were to go to Uganda with me sometime, I can show you, I don't get too close, but I can show you where there are witch doctors performing their trade. And uh, it's ugly. But they are very powerful. And they do hold sway over people. Where did Jesus get this authority? Do you remember, Matthew mentioned it last week, when Jesus came to John the Baptist and was baptized, and then a voice came from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descended on me like a dove, not a dove, but like a dove landing on him. And a voice came in heaven said, and it was repeated in three different places in the New Testament, this is my beloved son, pay attention to him. Later on, Jesus, when he told you and me in what's called the Great Commission in the 28th chapter of Matthew, Starting at verse 18, he starts off by saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. So you birds go preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them, teach them all things I've told you to teach them. And I'll be with you to the end of the age, he said. So the authority that Jesus had came directly from the heavenly Father. And the mission that was given to him was given to him before he left. Heaven itself. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And how he was going to do it. 
And Satan, for some reason or other, had found it out too. And that's why this next passage of Scripture becomes very important. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. <coughs> Excuse me. Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with the fever. And they told Jesus about her, so he went to her and took her by the hand and helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. One of the interesting things, as a side, and then I'm going to go on to the next one, is Peter, who is said to be the first pope among the Catholic brethren, was married. I think that's the only way you can get a mother-in-law. And actually, one of the two buildings that have been restored to some degree there in Capernaum now, if you were to visit, is the house of Peter and the, uh, and the synagogue, just north of it a few hundred feet. I'm of the opinion that the horrible problems that exist within the Catholic Church for abuse of the children probably would never be there if the priests were allowed to marry. A young priest that's no longer here in town, he, we befriended him, and, and uh, Timmy Glockner told me, he said he needs friends. And so Alice Kay and I were eating one day with him down town, and, and I was saying to him, hey, why won't you get married, man? And he, and I, he knew I was kind of giving it to him because we did that a little bit. And he said, well, I could never please a woman. And I said, well, duh, who can? That's no excuse. Well, he finally gave up and went back to Columbus. I, he just couldn't take the heat, I guess. Really a fine young man. I liked him a lot. But the church through the years has made some horrible mistakes. And I think, you see, the, the Orthodox church, the Eastern church, as opposed to Rome and, and, and Constantinople, that's the, Constantinople was the Eastern arm and Rome was the center of the Western part of the church. And the Eastern said, we want our priests to marry. And they, they do, even yet. Now let's, let's look at the concluding part here because it's about 20 till. What Jesus did in his ministries, he always started at home. He started there in the home because he was probably eating supper there and, and mother-in-law was puny in bed and he goes and lifts her hand and she gets up and fixes some supper. That's Peter's mother-in-law. And then he, then some really difficult things. That it says... In verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And what the demons were doing is were trying to force Jesus to expose himself as the Messiah before it was time to do that. And then Jesus, in order to prepare for what he was into, this, this fighting with the devil and all of his imps, 
the scripture then says very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he, where he prayed. His the companions, they, the four he had selected, started looking for him because they had some questions about him and they wanted him to continue what he was doing. But here's an important issue. There are three times in the New Testament where it says that Jesus went off into a solitary place in order to pray, in order to be strengthened for the fight with the devil. This is one of them. The other one was, the other two was, one of them was when he, after he had fed the 5,000, you remember he got on a boat and crossed the Sea of Galilee and went up into an area by himself. And then the latter one was in the sea in, at Gethsemane where he was arrested. In all three of those incidences, Jesus hunted a solitary place to pray because of considerable stressful and dangerous situation. We can learn a lesson from that. It would be good if we would learn to, to pray. What I'm not big on public prayers. I'll be very honest with you. Keep them short and get them over with because there's too often the temptation to make a public prayer a performance. That's a great temptation. And Jesus at recommended in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew, he says, here's what you really ought to do. Instead of having the temptation of making it a performance, find you... A solitary place, go in and shut the door where there's just you and God and, and get on with it from there. I recommend to you that you find that place. I was listening to Charles Stanley this morning and he was smart enough to know what I was going to say so he said the same thing. Find you a quiet place, get together and make that, pla make that the place that you go to. It becomes a holy place for you. And you will find... Uh, 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 it is a place of, of just like food gives you strength that time alone with God will strengthen you in a way that nothing you can do in public will ever do I know I've asked you to do a lot of things here this morning and probably you'll forget them but the two things I hope you remember is one have a daily meal with your family, have a, and we'll help you get a, a devotional that won't last over three minutes and that you'll have a meal where there's no telephone, no radio, no television, just your family together with God. And we'll pray that your wife can cook. That, that helps a little too, you know. Then in the latter part of this chapter, because we're there and it's already quitting time, but the kids are back there raising a lot of cane and, they, and so they're going, I'm just kidding, okay. The latter part of it here says this, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you're willing, will you make me clean? There's four ifs in the New Testament, but we only have one English word for it. There's if, first class condition, if you're willing, and I know you are. Second class condition says, if you're willing, and I hope you are. If your third class condition says, if you're willing, but you probably aren't. Fourth class condition says, if you're willing, but I know you won't. Now, we, don't, we can't see those in the English, but they're there in the Greek language. And this is number two where he says, if you're willing, but I don't know whether you are or not. I know you can do it because I've seen you do it. And I need to be. And Jesus had compassion on him, and he did something that he very seldom did. He actually reached out and touched the guy, and he was healed. 
of leprosy. When Jesus touched him, and I don't have time to go into all that's associated with what happens after you are recovering from leprosy, but it takes a week or two of things you have to do. But he was made whole. He was cleansed, the scripture says, of that horrible disease. Jesus touched him. There are times in the scripture you remember when someone touched Jesus. You remember the lady that came to him with a problem and she touched the hem of his garment and he turned quickly and said, who touched me? But here he took the volition because of compassion and the horrible situation that existed and reached out and touched the guy. The touch of Jesus, guys, it really means a lot. There was a poem written years ago entitled, The Touch of the Master's Hand. It reads something like this. I'm not very good at poetry. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the, act, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile." What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who will start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar? Then two? Only two? Two dollars? And who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice. Going for three. Uh, but no. From the room, the very back of the room, a gray-haired man came forward. And he picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as beautiful as a caroling angel would sing. The music ceased. And the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, Now what am I bid for the old violin? as he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars. And who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going, and going, and gone, said he. And the people cheered for some of them, and some of them cried. We don't quite understand what's changed its worth. And swift came the reply. "Twas the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd. Much like that old violin, a mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul. And the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. The touch of Jesus' hand is available for you.
And I don't care what you've done or where you've been. You're not out of his reach. And if you'll just ask him, he'll touch your life and you'll never be the same. So, Lord, bless this gathering of people. We pray for your touch upon those who are desperate in need of it. We pray that you will bless us all, Father, with a burden to go share what you've done for us with others who are eager to hear. Dismiss us now with a sense of your abiding presence. And may the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit strengthen us, guide us, and empower us in the coming week is my prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, you're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.